Welcome to the Besties with Breasties podcast. Sarah Hall here. I am a certified health and wellness coach, athletic trainer, mom, and breast cancer survivor. I help women overcome their own mind drama to make mind shifts that open up the possibility for their most empowered and energetic life. And I am Beth Wilmus, author, speaker, and founder of a human investment organization, otherwise known as a nonprofit called Faith Through Fire. Our mission is to reduce the fear and anxiety that breast cancer patients feel and replace it with hope and a path toward thriving. This podcast is about our experiences with breast cancer and life after as young survivors and moms. All right, so um, I am super excited because with us today we have Dr. Uh, Omer Tag. Did I say your name right? Omer Tag. Oh, Omer Tag. No. Omer Tag. Omer, like Omer. Omer. Omer Tag. Omer Tag. Oh, there you go, Sarah. You're just gonna have to say his name <laughs> for the rest of the rest. You <laughs> gotta get it. But, but yeah, the, yeah. Sarah's in charge of saying your name. It's been said. Okay, yeah. and you are a fertility and reproductive medicine obstetrics and gynecology doctor with Washington University slash BJC. Is that right? That is correct. Okay, and are you at the St. Peter's location or are you downtown? I'm in the Central West End. Oh. And, you know, now with COVID, everything is like, like I'm everywhere. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> you go where you're needed, right? Exactly. I love it. Okay. Well, that's cool. That's good to know. So Sarah and I were talking um, before you hopped on, and we thought it would be super fun to start with an icebreaker. Are you up for that? I'm very down for icebreakers. <laughs> okay, cool. All right. I'm we just very... have a few questions that we wanted to uh, put out there. So our, our first one, and we'll start with the first one. Um, what uh, what old person thing do you do? <laughs> we can share um, ours first since we kind of put you on the spot. We kind of prepped for this a little bit. Yeah, we know our old person. I know Sarah's thing. She's a big tea drinker. Mm-hmm. I do. Okay. Hot tea. Well, iced tea. The old per- okay, so the old person thing I do, I just turned 39. So the old person thing I do is constantly realize how old I am now. Oh, um, it's hitting home so, now, huh? Yeah. So basically like, oh, that was 30 years ago when that <laughs> CD came out. Oh, I'm I still know. Listening. I actually feel was- it's like when you see movie stars and they look older to you and you're like, wait a minute. Yeah. We they, were kids together. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, like John, I'm looking at John Bon Jovi. I'm like, man, this dude has not changed at all. He still kind of looks the same. Well, he's the one celebrity that has not aged. We will have to have him on the show and find out why that is. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. So, okay. So figuring out that you're older every day is your old person thing now. That's funny. Yes. Beth's, yes. Beth's, uh, Beth's old person thing that she does, and she shared mine, um, she wears sweaters even in the <laughs> middle of summer. Like we were recording and she's got on her long wool sweater. I feel as though I need to clarify, though, it's not a like a pullover sweater. It's like a cardigan, yeah, like a Mr. Yeah. Rogers, like a Mr. Rogers. Yeah, like that. Like, yeah. like, like I got you. Yeah. Um, you know, well, that way I if feel I, like I'm. Go ahead. I feel like I'm cold all the time, so I don't know if that if that also is it like kind of come a- to the dark side, doctor. <laughs> cardigan come, you, every day. I was just gonna say you can be known as the doctor that wears the cardigans. <laughs> the calling calling card. All right. So here's our second uh, question: How long do you think you would last in a zombie apocalypse, and why? It depends on how often the zombies are coming out. If they're just if they're just coming and coming, I would probably last about twenty eight days. 
Oh, oh okay. so specific. <laughs> yeah, that's just a movie reference. Right, yes. Uh, <laughs> um, and the reason I say that is just a, a nod to the movie, but also um, I've played enough like zombie Call of Duty uh, to know there it is, what I yes. need to do, You've what flamethrowers <laughs> flame I need, what my strategy is to try to survive the onslaught. We thought and we were going to stump him, but he's prepared for I this. I know, totally. That's hysterical. No, I just, I just, I just have wide range yeah. uh, of, y- you know, useless knowledge, perhaps, <laughs> that nice. allows me to excel in these kind of icebreakers. Oh my nice. gosh! Well, what about you, Sarah? Uh, I'm, I'm going to say my cardio is on point. I think I've even run and pictured lots of things chasing me, so. I I would say I would last as long as my cardio can. Okay. Yeah. All right. I am the person that gets killed in the opening credits. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I am oh, the geez. person that falls down, breaks my leg, and gets eaten right away. Oh, That's okay. I'll carry you, Beth, if I run past you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> You're such good. I mean, if you if you make it to an island, will the zombies be able to get you? Oh, good question. I don't mm-hmm. think they can swim. Mm-mm. No, not nope. in this. I don't zo- think so not in this zombie not, apocalypse. Not good swimmers. Awesome. All right. Well, today we're really excited to have you here to talk about the topic of uh, fertility with women who have been diagnosed with breast cancer. Before we get into that, though, let's hear from our first sponsor. Hair loss is consistently ranked as one of the most feared side effects of chemotherapy treatment. The emotional impact chemo hair loss can have on patients has been well documented. Scalp cooling is a simple treatment that can prevent hair loss caused by certain chemotherapy drugs. The use of scalp cooling is proven to be effective in preventing chemotherapy-induced alopecia and can result in people retaining much of their hair. Paxman is the global leader in scalp cooling. Their cold cap is scientifically proven to reduce hair loss during chemotherapy. If you are facing cancer treatment, and concerned about losing your hair, ask your provider about scalp cooling and visit our website at paxmanscalpcooling.com. That's paxmanscalpcooling.com. Okay, and we're back. So we're going to start with a discussion around the odds of getting pregnant after treatment and maybe then talk about the different options that exist for women. And finally, maybe we'll wrap up with what you think, Dr. Omer. Sarah, Dr. Tongue. There you go. <laughs> you what what you want women to know regarding this subject? Does that sound good? That sounds great. I we can go rapid fire. We can go however you want to go. Okay. Right. Yeah. All right. You want right. to start? Yeah. I, I, I'm curious. So, what is the percentage of likelihood that a woman can get pregnant on her own after breast cancer treatment? So this, I mean, this question is. There's a lot of nuance to it, and it starts with how old is the patient? When was she diagnosed? What treatment did she get? Mm-hmm. Okay, we uh, we know there's a lot of diversity in the type of breast cancer diagnosis a woman will receive. There's a lot of diversity in the age. Obviously, someone who gets a breast cancer diagnosis at 25 may have a better chance of taking home a baby on her own than someone who gets a breast cancer diagnosis at age 35. Mm-hmm. So age still kind of is the first question uh, you need to know when you address this. The second thing is what treatment did she get? Did she just need surgery and radiation and no chemo? Did she just need surgery and that was it? Did she need adjuvant chemotherapy with cyclophosphamide, which is highly gonadotoxic? And then is, does she have an estrogen positive tumor that's going to require five to 10 years of hormone therapy? And will she have a window to suspend that to conceive? There is this kind of 
theory about the healthy mother effect, which is the woman who has a breast cancer diagnosis, who does spontaneously conceive. I think it's important to point out that those women are actually not at any increased risk of mortality if they do get pregnant, because you'll see patients who have breast cancer who are like, oh, I have an estrogen sensitive tumor, but I've done my treatment. I've been given a window to get pregnant and I did get pregnant either spontaneously or with assistance. What will that, what effect will that have on my life? Mm -hmm. Have I jeopardized my life in any way? And the answer is no, there is some data. And it's, if you were to Google healthy mother effect, breast cancer, this is a pretty well-known thought. And that's that, you know, the woman who gets pregnant after a breast cancer diagnosis tends to have a better survival rate, not necessarily because she got pregnant, but there are circumstances perhaps around her breast cancer diagnosis and treatment that already portended a better prognosis. Now, that's, so I'm not really- that, that's fascinating because Sarah was pregnant when she got breast cancer and my youngest child had just turned one when I got breast cancer. So I kind of think of pregnancy as like, oh, uh, uh, doom yeah. and gloom. Yeah. Like, is this not, you know, and I would have definitely been concerned if that were me that getting pregnant after breast cancer treatment would have increased my risk. I mean, you would think your body would be coursing with estrogen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's, so this is the thing that comes up is- okay, I had this estrogen. Yeah. When you're pregnant, you're making tons of estrogen, you're making tons of progesterone. And if you have a hormone sensitive tumor, you know, patients should really be talking to their oncologist about, look, pregnancy is a priority for me. Where am I with that? What risks do I have? And, you know, oftentimes the focus is on let's treat this cancer and rightfully so, but you're going to beat this there's a really good chance you're going to beat this today that as opposed to, you know, 30 years ago. So you really want to be, you really want to be an advocate for yourself and talk to your oncologist about what's our game plan for when I want to get pregnant. So what are the, I think going back to the original question is what is the chance of getting pregnant? I can't give you just like a number because it varies from, you know, depends on how old the, the, what's the age of the woman. Does she have embryos frozen if she's 40, but has embryos that were frozen when she was, 29, her chances of success would be that of a 29 year old. So, you know, I can answer it through the lens of what is your chance with frozen embryos, but from a spontaneous, it's, it's, it's difficult to say, That makes. but let me say, but let me say this, and I could just add this fact. I mean, let me just back up a little bit. The, the, maybe the best question is what is the chance of any human being actually getting pregnant in Mm -hmm. a given month, Mm -hmm. you know, who doesn't even have infertility, like they, you know, what do you think the chance of success is in a given month of someone who has no infertility, 25 years old, stop the birth control pills, "Ah, I'm ready to get pregnant. Let's do it. Let's have intercourse. Let's see what happens. What do you think the likelihood of getting pregnant per month is? Mm. 100%? No, no. 30%. Yeah. It's about 20 to 25%. But we see, yeah, (laughs) yeah, you know, so you guys are right. Like after six months of unprotected intercourse, 75% of couples should have conceived. After one year, 80%, 85% of couples should have conceived. So the patient with breast cancer who is now given the window to try, I would probably say, look, you know, if we have this tight window, we should probably try for a couple months on your own. If everything, if you're in a situation to do that, your periods are regular now, uh, or you're, you're, you're having periods, you're under 35, you want to try on your own. We didn't freeze anything. Your ovaries look normal. Your AMH level is good, which is a marker of ovarian reserve. You didn't get chemotherapy. Again, 
highly individualized, highly complex, you might let them try on their own. But if they have risk factors that might portend some infertility or subfertility, you might be more aggressive in helping them. Mm, Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I have a question. So for somebody who gets diagnosed and say they're already, their doctor is already saying that they'll probably need chemo and it's an estrogen receptor positive cancer, what kind of time frame do they have from the time that they're diagnosed to try and find some avenue to preserve their fertility? The quick answer is two weeks. Okay. Okay. So in order for someone to freeze their eggs prior to starting chemotherapy, you, you just need two weeks. And this is where it is critical for patients to, okay, I have a lump. We're doing, I'm getting a biopsy. I have it confirmed. I have a diagnosis. Breast surgeon, please send me to the infertility doctor, or I am going to the infertility or the fertility clinic now. Um, whether I've seen the oncologist or not, Mm. because you have about four to six weeks from the time you make the diagnosis, the time you see the oncologist and they start you on treatment. Mm. So that is the time to see the fertility specialist to bank eggs or embryos if uh, applicable. I'm curious, uh, just because, you know, I was, I happened to be pregnant at the time and, and I was young, but I was never even directed to a fertility specialist. So I'm curious, how often does that do you feel like that the funnel of a young person who's been diagnosed with breast cancer right. kind of comes to you or finds you? Well, it's happening more and more now than it was 10 years ago. You ha- the, the idea of um, fertility preservation or oncofertility is really only f- really formally like 14 years old. I mean, it's not even old enough to drive. Mm. Okay. So we've had to do a lot of outreach, grassroots education with oncology. I mean, like, you know, physicians, they kind of have these cultural status quos and this is kind of how we do this. It's always been kind of how we do this and it's cancer. We got to go, go, go. We got to treat, we got to treat, but we're so much better. The collective, we are so much better at treating cancer and survivorship is rising. So the conversations about what to do with the rest of your life to achieve your goals is now becoming more and more part of the dialogue in the oncology clinic. So we're seeing more people show up who were referred from their oncologists. Um, you know, we've done a lot of outreach here at Sightman. And, and, and the other piece is just using social media. Like we talk about this on Instagram, you know, it's, we talk about re- posts related to breast cancer and just trying to individ- ed- ed- communi- educate the community. Mm-hmm. Um, because if one person hears it, okay, well then I have a friend who has breast cancer. Let me tell them if they've talked about fertility and if they haven't, you know, they could come to our clinic or they could go wherever they live and they can at least advocate for themselves. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying there. Before we go before we go on, we have we have more questions, but let's let's break off and do our boobs in the news. Boobs in the news. Oh yeah, <laughs> boobs in the news. All right, so boobs in the news is a fun segment where we read funny tweets from real people or ridiculous news stories. Bibs in the news, bibs in the news, bibs in the news. So today's story comes out of Canada. A woman's unconventional McDonald's meal has people scratching their heads. Oh, gosh. Okay. <laughs> Katie Poole, a mum, in Toronto, Canada. I just like Do to say, say that. Do they say that in yeah, Canada? Apparently. I thought mom. that was an English thing. That's how the new story was written. Okay. Made the request after one too many drinks with her partner. Uh-oh. <laughs> When it came to ordering her burger, she was very specific about what she wanted. 
and she made multiple modifications. Oh, uh, you know, the guy behind the McDonald's counter was like, get out of here. Get out of here. <laughs> this girl's slurring All right, her words. What did, what did she ask for? The receipt showed that Katie asked for a burger. Okay. With no mustard. Okay. No onions. Okay. No pickles. All right. No bun. All right. Oh, no bun? And <laughs> no, bun? no hamburger patty. Well, what's left? Apparently, she thought ketchup would cure her hangover. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> do you think they actually filled that order, or do you think they educated her? I mean, how funny would it be if she rolled up to the window and they just, like, tossed oh, a thinking, couple packets think, out the window? <laughs> I'm thinking that she's at the counter, but you're right. She's probably the drive-thru. This is the day of to- COVID. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that's what I would do. I'd just throw a bunch of pa- a bunch of ketchup packets at her and say, there you go, Katie. Good yeah. luck with that. Good oh luck with your hangover. Gosh. Boobs in, in the, the news. news. So funny. <laughs> Love it. Bibs in the news. Bibs in the news. Bibs in the news. Here's a question that I know that we get from people going through this because you have a tight window, you've got two weeks and say you want to preserve your fertility, but then there's the issue of cost. What does that typically look like for a patient and and what, to your knowledge, what resources exist to maybe help somebody conceive that that's worried about cost? Okay, so a couple things. If we're talking about egg or embryo banking, the cost of doing it is subsidized here at WashU BJC Fertility Reproductive Medicine. Um, What'll happen, it's basically $5,500. It's normally 13K to 16K. We basically subsidize the costs um, significantly and we provide free medication. Okay. Okay. So it's still not chump change, obviously, but we we provide a significant discount. And we've been starting a process of working with, you know, we have a foundation and we're trying to get private money to help support. Because honestly, if one person donates $10,000, that covers two people for preservation. I mean, we probably have anywhere from one to three people going through in a given month who have breast cancer or lymphoma, like this week, for example, I, you know, not, you know, we have, this is one of the a high volume, uh, week. Um, so anybody, you know, this is maybe just a plea if anyone is interested. I mean, this is a, this is an important thing to support. Yeah. I mean, Sarah and I are very, whatever. Yeah. Sarah and I are very much, um, and I love everything that you're saying because the whole point of Faith Through Fire and Besties with Breasties is to encourage women to focus on their quality of life. I mean, cancer is very traumatizing and you do feel very rushed to take care of your cancer diagnosis. But I love what you say about focusing on your life after and and the optimism that exists with that, you know, that you're going to go through treatment and you need to have your eye kind of on the prize and that there are options for women to preserve their fertility with various health systems that are there to help them do that. So I think that's yes, so- really encouraging. And I think women need to hear that, you know, because it's devastating enough to hear that you have cancer and then to have the secondary trauma of that you may not be able to have kids is just another compounding factor. Oh, it's, it's a, Beth, it's exhausting. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can imagine. I, I don't need to put you in anybody's shoes. I mean, <laughs> you know this. Um, but we both had right. kids at the time. I mean, we talk about it quite often, what it must feel like. You know, that was one of the blessings of my diagnosis was that I was done having children. My youngest was one. And I think about it all the time about what it would have been like for me if I hadn't been at that point in my life. So. Mm-hmm. 
I always put myself, I really try to put myself in these patients' positions because think about it. Here you are, you just got the diagnosis of breast cancer and everything that goes with that. And now we got to start chemo. We got to go, 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 go. And then boom. Oh yeah. You want to get pregnant? Oh yeah. Uh, this might harm your chances. So why don't you go see the fertility specialist? Oh, okay. So you go show up at the fertility specialist and then boom, you're hit with everything that goes with fertility, the anxiety, the, I mean, you're, you you're just hit with it all. And oh yeah, we got to do IVF in two weeks. I have a friend who did IVF and it took her three months to get the whole process started and everything that goes with the physical, the financial and the emotional exhaustion of that. And, you know, excuse me, but like now I'm trying to do all of this too. Right. I mean, it's very overwhelming. Yeah. So let's talk about like what the options are for women. So you're talking about embryo freezing. You're talking about egg freezing, right? Are those Mm -hmm. the two most Mm -hmm. commonly used procedures? Yeah. So those are standard of care. I think the last decade was the decade of egg freezing. And, you know, we'll talk about this in a second, but I think the next decade may be the decade of ovarian tissue crop preservation. It's, we'll see. And the reason I say that is because at the beginning of 2010, 2012, we basically lifted the experimental label of egg freezing. And now it's become more standard over the last decade, we've gotten pretty consistent at being able to freeze and thaw eggs, which is very challenging because it's the largest cell in the human body, a single egg. So it's very difficult. It's made of a lot of fluid. It doesn't, you know, the the freeze thaw process is technically challenging. The collective, we have largely mastered it so that we get 90 to 95% recovery rates with the thaws. Interesting. Okay. So you have the option of freezing your eggs and then having insemination after the fact with your significant other, or you can freeze the embryos, which freeze better than the egg? Yeah, I think that statement was one that we made a lot in 2012 to about 2016. I don't, me personally, everyone's a little bit different about how they couch this, but me personally, I think they're pretty much equivalent for, I wouldn't, I would never tell anybody, oh, you're 22, you're single. We should freeze your, we should create embryos. So let's find some donor sperm to create mm-hmm. embryos now I because you're, you're going to have a better, gotcha. like I we would never do that. Gotcha. So for, for all intents and purposes, it's equivalent. So I don't spend a lot of time creating some sort of anxiety about, well, we should freeze eggs or we should create embryos because that's better. I mean, I probably say, your success rates are maybe a little bit south of what our success rates are with frozen embryo transfers, but it's negligible. We just have more experience with embryo freezing, like 30 years of experience as opposed to 10. Okay. So I think that's, I think that's where that discrepancy comes from. But I would say practically speaking, and when we counsel patients, egg freezing is egg freezing. And the chances of success, we, we show people this graph that is commonly used that says, okay, you're 30, you're, you know, you're 24 or you're, you know, you're 35, your likelihood of taking home a baby with 10 eggs. If we get 10 eggs, you'll have a 70% chance of taking home one baby with those 10 eggs. That's how the counseling goes. Mm. And you're not really in a position to say, well, sometimes you can try a second cycle. Sometimes you can't. Interesting. Well, so that leads me to what you talked about with the ovarian tissue freezing, because for people who have an issue with medicalized conception, ovarian tissue freezing seems to me like a really great option. But I'm curious about the success rate with it and where we are today with it, because like you said, it's kind of only recently coming to the forefront. So what are your thoughts on that procedure? 
So ovarian tissue craft, so first of all, the standard for fertility preservation is egg or embryo freezing. And you would freeze embryos if you had a significant other. I'm always very careful with, you know, if someone's in a relationship, but that relationship may not be a committed one, freeze eggs. If you're married and have been having unprotected intercourse, fine, you can freeze embryos. There is that social piece that we have to navigate. And then ovarian tissue crab preservation has been deemed experimental until recently. Uh, this year, the experimental label was list- lifted by the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. In the, I think we have somewhere around 300 cases of ovarian tissue crab preservation and somewhere around 100 births. It's, it's very helpful in patients where you don't have time like these lymphoma patients, the leukemia patients, where they need to do treatment immediately. The caveat is those are also the same patients where there is some theoretical risk of there being cancer cells in those ovarian tissue strips that are removed. And if they're regrafted into the patient, could you be reintroducing cancer cells? I mean, we have some case series experience where that has not been found, but it's a very uh, big gamble that when there are other, if there is time to do oocyte or embryo, um, we tend we tend to do that. Is there a difference in the cost of ovarian tissue harvesting versus freezing embryos or eggs? Um, the cost of ovarian tissue is going to be related to the anesthesia cost and then the cost of the surgeon to do the procedure and then, of course, the cost of freezing. So what you're not paying for is the medication to stimulate the oocyte, to stimulate the ovary for the oocyte to grow. And they can sometimes bundle the ovarian tissue cryopreservation procedures in with like other related procedures, like a port placement, right? Mm -hmm. So, oh, we're going to, you know, do the port. So we'll use that anesthesia. We won't bill for second anesthetic anesthesia procedure because we'll use this anesthesia while we're putting the port and while we're getting the port in, we'll also do the laparoscopy to remove the strips. I I asked you that question because before I started Faith Through Fire, I was mentoring a young woman and she had a boyfriend, but they weren't married. She had a very aggressive form of breast cancer. Her providers were really pushing her to start chemotherapy, but she hadn't had children yet. And she was a Medicaid patient. And so she was really concerned that she couldn't afford fertility treatments. And so essentially what happened was she went through treatment and then she saw a fertility expert afterward and they told her her odds of conceiving on her own were very, very low. And then I took that call from her when she was kind of processing and devastated over that news. And that was before I started Faith Through Fire or or had heard about ovarian tissue harvesting. And I just sometimes wonder if that would have been a better option for her if she had known Mm -hmm. about that. And also to your point about different hospitals having foundations to help women who can't afford treatment have children. I just wonder if that's kind of one of those near misses that could have been avoided. What are your what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, ovarian tissue crop preservation, the cost may be less. That's, I, I think it's about the same, though, after the subsidy. So the cost thing is probably, you know, a push, but the timing thing is probably the bigger issue. If you can get, if you have the, first of all, you need to be at a center where there's experience. So here at WashU, at Siteman, at St. Louis Children's, we have uh, ovarian tissue crowd preservation. Uh, we have a team, we have the integrated care and fertility preservation program that myself and Dr. Hefkin, a pediatric gynecologist, uh, co-direct, she's the founder. And we have, uh, funds to support ovarian tissue crowd preservation, particularly in adolescent and pre-pubertal girls where ovarian tissue cryopreservation 
can play a large role. The adults, typically we, we go to egg freezing and embryo banking, typically because we have the time. We can subsidize it, but still, like I said, 5,500 is not a lot or is, is, is a lot, is a burden for people. So we just either got to get the state to provide fertility preservation benefits. This has been a, one strategy or private money. Mm. Interesting. That's interesting. I didn't know. I mean, I had, you know, it's not a thought that I had had before, but what is the process like trying to somebody who's been diagnosed at a young age, you said prepubescent? Like pediatric patients, like they're trying to preserve yeah. their fertility when they're young so that they can have their own children when they're older. Yeah, so I, I mean, that makes sense. I What is that like when you reintroduce that? Like the reimplantation? Oh, well, yeah, I would, so I would imagine you'd have a super healthy egg. <laughs> well, yeah, right. except yeah. that you haven't gone through puberty, right? Oh, I don't know. You've taken well, out, I mean, well, kind what of. Happens- pituitary gland does that, I guess. We, we've done it three times here. Um, and Dr. Hefkin has a lot more experience because she did this when she was at Cincinnati Children's. My experience with ovarian tissue craft preservation is really minimal, like zero, honestly, because I haven't done, we haven't done one case since, like I have not been personally involved in a case of ovarian tissue craft preservation because it was largely experimental and egg freezing was kind of the standard and we had the capability to do that. Now we have the experience to do it. It's just for the prepubertal girls, it is, it is nice because what basically happens is you remove a strip of, o- of ovarian tissue and then you can reimplant it, assuming they need it. Some of these patients may not even need it because they might still be, they might not be knocked down totally. Their reserve may still be healthy enough for them to have pubertal function after the chemotherapy. It just really depends on what they're, what chemotherapy they're getting. You bring a good point up though, because we didn't explain to the people listening what ovarian tissue harvesting and then reimplantation even is. So can you kind of just go through really quickly, like what that looks like? Basically what you're doing is you're removing strips of ovarian tissue. What I described earlier, where you do egg freezing, you're literally just removing the egg. With ovarian tissue cryopreservation, you are removing strips of actual ovarian tissue and within each strip of ovarian tissue, there's hundreds of primordial or immature eggs that are just sitting there. Okay. So those strips are then frozen and then can be used at a later time. Now, how those strips can be used at a later time is there are a couple of ways. They can be grafted back or auto-transplanted back into the patient, into kind of the ovary or remaining ovary or into the kind of fossa uh, or pouch, if you will, where the ovary typically is, if it had to be removed completely for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And from that, that tissue should be, should get adequate uh, blood supply and oxygen so that it can then respond to the signals from the brain to then start making follicles, ovulating, and perhaps even being captured by an adjacent fallopian tube for spontaneous conception. We don't know how long these grafts can last. Some, you know, some studies have suggested the grafts can last seven, 10 years, but that's where the experience is, stands to expand greatly over the next decade as more and more people do it. How many doctors in the St. Louis area are doing that? Um, there are honestly probably two. Okay. Interesting. That's fascinating. One here, one here and one in the community. 
So really, what do you, what do you want women to know? They, they get the diagnosis of breast cancer. They want children. They're worried they can't have them. What are your words of wisdom to them so that they can take action? I think the most important thing is the minute you find out you have a breast cancer diagnosis, seek a fertility specialist like myself to talk about what your options are to preserve your fertility. Talk for, I mean, first talk to your oncologist, talk to your breast surgeon. If you're, if you don't feel like you're getting the support you need more, you're more and more likely to these days than maybe, you know, 10, 15 years ago, but still the purpose here is be an advocate for yourself and reach out to a fertility clinic to learn more. Mm. It's a common thread in our common theme really in all of our podcasts is just being an advocate for yourself. So that's really good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think, I think doctors have a lot more opportunities to educate the masses nowadays mm -hmm. than we did 15 mm -hmm. years ago. And I think by, you, you know, people are saying, oh, Dr. Google this, Dr. Google that. And I'm like, no, why don't you have, why don't you be Dr. Google and give your patients the first, the, the, you know, the launch pad. So why don't you you be the website, you be the podcast, you be the Instagram. You, you need to provide the, the community with some basics. Yeah. And some of those basics are, look, if you have any cancer diagnosis, you, you will, there is a very good chance in 2020 and beyond that you will beat that cancer diagnosis. So you need to plan for life after treatment. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that, you know, one of the, you know, significant emotional events for people in life is building a family reproduction. So the first question is, well, is this chemo going to affect my ability to conceive? Should I be banking my eggs? Should I be creating embryos? We were trying to conceive. You know, I've seen patients who were in the middle, who had infertility, who were getting ready to do an IVF cycle. And then boom, oh, I have a breast lesion now. Oh, I have breast cancer. And then the, the, the narrative behind why they're doing IVF suddenly flips. Mm -hmm. It's, it's scary, but mm -hmm. your fertility doctor will help you through it. Mm. That yeah. is great information. Yeah, really good. Thank you so much for being on today and talking us through this. I know it's going to be really helpful to patients. Yeah, I think these, yeah, thank you for having me. I think these kind of relationships, I wouldn't mind coming back, talking more on this topic or anything else that you feel would be valuable. I mean, a lot of people also ask about, well, what about hormone treatment uh, after uh, breast cancer treatment? I'm now kind of feeling, you know, I have vasomotor symptoms, vaginal dryness. I can't take hormones. What are my strategies? happy to talk about all those things as well. Oh, well, you are in luck, my friend, yeah. because we are going to be having a whole segment on sexual dysfunction. So we might have to circle <laughs> back with you on that. But yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. I mean, at Faith Through Fire, we always talk about connecting patients, providers, and community supports. And it's really important to have these conversations. So we really appreciate you. And uh, we will hopefully talk to you again soon. Look forward to it. Thanks, Beth. All right. Take Thanks, care. Sir. Bye. Bye. Before we recap, let's hear from our second sponsor. SSM Health is a proud sponsor of the Besties with Breasties podcast. One in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer during their lifetime. Early detection is key and keeping up to date on yearly mammograms could be life-saving. At SSM Health, we offer patients in the St. Louis area online scheduling for mammograms, including next day appointments. Visit ssmhealth.com slash schedule ma'am to make your appointment now. So in summary for today, Dr. Omar Tog was really gracious in providing us with a lot of good insights into what's out there for fertility options for people diagnosed with cancer and breast cancer. Specifically, uh, I think we have 
three main points that we really want to summarize and leave you guys with today. Um, number one, just every situation. I think we beat this home every single episode, but every situation is going to be unique and what you're explore what you're comfortable with and what you envision for your future. And if that future includes fertility or having some kind of family planning after treatment, make that known to your provider so that you can get a referral for a fertility specialist as soon as possible. Yeah, immediately. And then guys, if you're concerned about the cost associated with fertility preservation, just keep in mind um, what the doctor mentioned, which is that lots of hospitals have foundations dedicating funds to helping patients conceive. Check out your healthcare institution's foundation and ask your doctor about that. Another great resource that I've heard about is a collaboration between Walgreens and Faring Pharmaceuticals. It's called the Heartbeat Program. The feedback that I've gotten is that it's a very easy application process and they provide funds to women um, for free medications, free fertility medications. So that might be an option as well. For the next two episodes, we will be covering all things chemo. Mm. So we'll be talking about port versus no port, our tips and tricks, what we experienced when we went through chemo, uh, reactions, and then uh, we'll even touch on exercise and chemo and what that gives. There you go. All right. Until next time, guys. Bye.